All right, cool. Are you ready? I'm ready. This is fun. It is. You're fun. such an expert with this. You're amazing. Oh my gosh, I have learned a lot. <laughs> I'm still learning a lot, um, but it really is. It, it's something that I really enjoy, and it it allows me to connect with my friends who I've met previously, and to make new friends of those people who I haven't met in person yet. And it really just, I mean, it like kind of shines a light on the sin gap in a way that I don't have it otherwise, right? Like it, it's the happy part of, of, of sin gap life for me. So this is fun. That's great. Well, I've just pretty much cried through every episode that I've listened to and I've listened to every single one of your episodes, oh my gosh. Just so you know. <laughs> but it just hits so close to my heart hearing these stories. They're yeah. just all so special. Yeah, I agree. Well, this one's going to be no different. Hello and welcome to SynGap One Stories, hosted by me, Ashley Fry. Every couple of weeks, I spread information and awareness about a rare disease that affects my son, Nathan. It's called SynGap One. I chat with parents, siblings, caregivers, and others about the challenges and successes of their journey with someone impacted by SynGap One. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hello, everyone. Today's conversation is going to be unlike all of the previous conversations you've heard so far on this show. Many of you will recognize her and her Syngapian and probably know a little of the backstory by way of a movie titled Celebrating Karen. So with no further delay, meet Nancy Kessler. Hi, Ashley. I am just so happy to be here and thankful that you're having me to tell more about Karen. Yes, of course. We are happy to hear from you and learn more from you. So Nancy lives in Beach Haven, New Jersey with her husband, Brian. She has an adult child, Lauren, who is lovely. And her Syngapian is 67-year-old sister, Karen Lieb. Karen lives in a group home in Livingston, New Jersey, not far from Nancy. And tonight we're going to learn all about Karen. So Nancy, where should we start? There's so much, there's so much we could talk about. Well, there's 67 years of everything we could talk about, but mm. um, so I I often think about my parents and how Karen was like growing up with her, and I think that's something that um, you know people like to hear about what it's like for a sibling, and um, each one of us I'm one of a few in our family where we have four, but each one of us kind of um, looks at the situation with Karen in her own way. And when Karen was born, my mom said, oh, you're the one who's going to be taking care. You're the one who's going to be helping out. And sure enough, that's what I did. So I did everything when I was younger to help take care of Karen because I got pleasure out of it. I've always had great pleasure out of taking care of Karen. Um, But Karen started off with, gosh, she had feeding issues from the start. She had all the same issues that I hear all the other parents talk about, pretty much. She had her foot turned in. She needed a brace. She had behaviors from the start. She was rebellious and didn't want her diaper changed, didn't want her clothes changed. Um, so, so her symptoms from young life are just so much like everyone else's symptoms, pretty much. Wow, wow that's, I mean... I think we expect to know that, but that's very kind of reassuring. Like this, this disease has a pattern and it has very similar things that go on. And I think that's, that's, I don't know. I find that reassuring in some way. 
It, it, it is. And it's uh, one of the reasons I enjoy speaking to other parents and families, and especially with the older children, like we'll have conversations. Oh, my son Gabby does that. Oh, mine does too. And it's just like, Karen is, um, she, she doesn't miss anything. She can be in a room and she knows every single thing going on. She has like supersonic hearing and you cannot have a conversation without her eavesdropping and wanting to know what it's about. So you have to be careful with your language around her also, cause she's like a little <laughs> parrot and will repeat what you say too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. So I don't always have the daintiest language and my mother chastises me sometimes. <laughs> She'll say, Ashley, you shouldn't say that. And you definitely shouldn't say it around Nathan. I'm like, mom, I don't care what words he says. As long as he says more words, he can <laughs> spout them off. But that's probably something I should monitor more. <laughs> oh, it's just also hard, but it's great that they're imitating and parroting what we say. That's, that's great if, if they're able to do that, which is really neat. Yeah. Karen, from a young age, she, um, she, she learned some things. She did learn to read. She learned through phonics so she can read just pretty much words. She could spell words. Uh, to, to this day, she, if you have your name, she loves name, people's names. So if you hung your name up in front of her, she'd probably be able to read it, which oh, that's is amazing. amazing. Uh, she learned simple math. Uh, she could count to 100. And these, a lot of this information is from records that my mother kept amazing records on her. Mm. So that was really great. But also things that I remember from when she was little too. Yeah. I used, I used to play teacher. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was going to bring that up because you are a retired school psychologist, right? How yes. much of your decision to go into that line of work was impacted by your relationship with mm -hmm. Karen? So it's so funny that you say that and ask that because I started off in education saying, okay, I grew up with a special needs person. I'm not going to go into special ed. I'll, I'll just go into regular ed. So I was teaching in kindergarten. And before I knew it, I had seven or eight special needs children in my classroom with barely any help. And I said to the school psychologist, like, how come? She goes, because you're, you're really empathetic. You have compassion. You understand. And you're really doing a great job with them. And so I thought, okay, well, I thought I wasn't going to work with special needs. I had my life of it. And now my lifetime earlier of it. And now mm -hmm. um, they're in my classroom. So I said to the school psychologist, how can I become one of you? There you and go. she called me and I went back to school and I became a school psychologist. And the biggest part of that was I was an advocate for the special needs kids. And I made sure they were in the right placements. They got what they needed. Their IEPs were written with what should be in there. If they needed an out-of-district placement, I made sure that happened. So I was uh, acting director twice also, but I went back to being a school psychologist so I could be with my daughter during the summer and be with my family. But I start was able to start some programs in the school district. I started programs uh, for autism with the, the school and all like that. But that was my area of interest. And oh my I gosh. attribute that all to Karen. 
Well, of course. So my first question is, will you come out of retirement and work with anyone who contacts you to <laughs> provide those services in our current situations? That'd be fabulous. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I, I have done that with a, a few families. I have spoken to a few things. I've been retired now almost six years. So things have changed a little bit, but bottom line is the laws are still the laws and things are still the same in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, we can talk about, about this a little bit later, but you volunteer a lot with SRF. And one of the ways that you volunteer is to provide some some very good experienced um, recommendations for people to better advocate for their situation and their child in their school district. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think from having a couple of different conversations, what do you think people need to take home? Like if there was one thing that they should remember from talking to somebody like you, what would that one thing be? Um, I always feel as though parents should trust their instincts. They know their child better than anyone. And if you have a gut feeling that you know, which program do you want your child in? Go with your gut. And if it doesn't work out, what's the worst thing that could happen? You make a change. It's okay. But I feel as though parents know their kids better than anyone and are their best advocates. And um, from working in the school, I think it's important that the school needs to always listen to the parents. That's great advice. Um, yeah, especially just ha having the confidence to trust yourself, even though in a lot of these IEP meetings, you're surrounded by experts and principals and people who have done this for years and years. And, you know, sometimes as a, as a fairly young mom with, you know, a young child navigating this for the first time, you think, oh, well, they're telling me everything that is the best for my child. And, and knowing that you should stand up for what you think is the right thing is a very good point. Mm -hmm. If you feel something is off and it's not right, um, and you feel your child should have a different therapy or more therapy, whatever it is, you need to really advocate for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go through some of Karen's life. Let's talk about, um, some of the actions that were taken when she was young and ultimately I want to lead up to how she received her diagnosis not too long ago. So from a young age, Karen had pretty severe behaviors. She would sit outside in the street. She wouldn't come in. She wouldn't go to sleep. Um, I remember the one time she had my mother pinned up against the wall with the kitchen table. She was strong of oh. her little child, really strong. She would have tantrums. And so with these difficult behaviors, my parents, first of all, the doctors told my mom that she was too strict, not strict enough or whatever. It was her fault basically. And when my mother realized that's not the case, she was able to get an evaluation around the age of five was the first evaluation she had done. And um, it came back that she had uh, what they called mental retardation back then. For now, it's mm -hmm. like cognitive delays. And it was so difficult for her to have 
Karen at home because my mother had three other children. Um, Karen went to residential starting around close to age eight, and that was the North Jersey Training Center. And she stayed there for about two years and came home. And my parents did like everything they could possibly do. As you know, most of us do, we do. Mm -hmm. And they took her to every doctor, every place. So they tried that school that didn't work. So they found a place in Philadelphia. Um, it's like a brain training kind of thing. If a child doesn't crawl, you want to bring that child back to learn to crawl again, basically. So they hosted people in the home and had Karen, They it's a, this is called patterning. They had her crawl through a long tunnel. And then at the end, they would ask her a math question. Then they'd put her on a table and they'd move her arms and legs, like how you would, so she could get more coordination. And the doctors told my parents, oh, she'll be fine after this. She's going to be normal. And of mm. course, that didn't happen. She, I think she improved some of her academic skills during that, but her behaviors didn't improve. Mm. So the next step was she went to another residential in Pennsylvania called St. Mary's of Providence. And my mother um, was hoping that the religious aspect would help Karen with the nuns being stricter and whatnot, that that could help. That backfired. And <sighs> after a few years, I remember she turned uh, one of the rooms upside down and destroyed the furniture, things like that, which yeah. un was unfortunate. So by the age of 17, the doctors and they were telling my parents that she's literally going to be in a straitjacket and there's no oh place that will accept her. So my father, through all of his connections, found a doctor in Boston, Dr. Scoville, who conducted lobotomies. So they did that and they did a lobotomy for Karen, which is oh the, part of the brain. <laughs> they right. removed part of the brain and she has a big scar across the, the front. Uh, the out, the immediate outcome of that was she had major, major seizures, uh, grand mal seizures, and she went on Melorel four times a day and all these medications. And from that point on, she was accepted at Vineland Developmental Center, which is one of the institutions, which I have to say, she was there for 40 some years. She had a great experience there for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, when Karen came home, she didn't want to be home. She wanted to go back there. That became her home. Mm, that's telling. And, yeah. And there were people there that worked with her who literally came to her gala, which we'll talk more about, but who were her aide who was with her for 20 some years, who would take her home for holidays when we couldn't go <laughs> visit Karen and sponsored her was at the gala. Her name is Miss Sims and Amazing. she'll be there again this year. Just so excited. So when she's there, uh, when Karen sees her, even now, she just holds her hand, holds her oh. hand and stares at her, which is just precious. She remembers this is a person that took such good care of me. Nine years ago, moving forward, nine years ago, I brought Karen to be closer to where I live. Our mother passed away now 23 years ago, and our, our father was still alive at the time. Uh, but we brought her close to all of us, and that ended up being a great situation. We moved her to a second group home, which has OT, PT, speech, nursing, doctors. So it's a full rehab center owned by the same people that own the home. It's really a great oh, situation. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
So I know she's happy there because whenever I see her speak to her FaceTime, when I go there, she's always happy. And oh, great. I, I can also tell, and I feel like any parent can tell this about their Syngabian, it's the way they look at people. If you see that they're looking at someone in, an, in a, with love or whatever, you know that that person is in good standing. Mm-hmm. If Karen looks at someone and I can see that look and she doesn't approve of that person, watch out. I feel really bad for that person because <laughs> Karen's not going to give them the time of day. Oh my gosh. That's so incredible. I mean, I think one of the one of the hardest things for parents like me who have younger children is thinking about what their teen years are going to look like, what their adult years are going to look like. And for for better or worse, you know, I sometimes have this stereotypical bad impression of what some institutions or group homes can look like. And I know that I shouldn't because they're not all that way. And I know a lot of it has to do with the individuals, just like you said, the care that they're being provided on a round the clock basis by the one main person. And so I probably, oh, it's such a hard thing to think about really, but I probably need to open my eyes to the fact that there are really wonderful facilities that will care for our our loved ones. And it will just be a matter of finding them, making sure that our kids are placed where we want them to be. And hopefully it can be somewhere close to us relatively and know that they're in good hands. I think it's really hard. It's hard to trust. And one thing I can say is that Karen is so strong-willed that if there's something or someone who's not paying attention to her or doing what she wants them to do, everyone will know about it. <laughs> Whether it's screaming <laughs> or whatever, you will know about it. And uh, Karen has been quite a survivor in so many situations. And we don't always know exactly every part of her life. And I try not to lose too much sleep over that. Um, I know my parents made the best decisions they could. And especially for back in the 60s um, and early 70s, they did the best that they could. and They tried everything they could. Things are different now. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of stops in place now. There's a lot of security and assurances in place. But once again, you have to just really trust your instincts. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I did that and I've moved Karen. So I also make it a point to really, um, appreciate and recognize the people who take care of her on a daily basis. I pretty much show up with something for them every time I see them. um, I have made connections with them also. I think that's really key. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nathan, you know, right now is much younger than Karen and he lives with us and, but we have caregivers. We have three very wonderful caregivers who are all in the special education program at the University of Mississippi. And we've interviewed them and they've been trained by his ABA therapist. And when I chat with them for the first time, I always say something like, you know, my goal is for you to fall in love with Nathan and for us to fall in love with you because it's kind of, it's more than just like caring for him sometimes. Like, we want you to be kind of like a part of our family and that's how I, I like to treat them. And so, you know, I think establishing 
those closer relationships and even friendships when appropriate with the people who care for our children and our family members goes a long way. And showing that appreciation for them, however we can, I think um, means a lot to everybody because it's not always easy caring for our, for our Syngapians. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, and another person who came to Karen's gala, Syngap Research Fund gala, honoring Karen, mm-hmm. I should say, um, last year was her babysitter. From oh. when she was, we had pictures, we have movies of this, but she came to the, to the gala and it was just so touching that Karen, Karen has made, I believe, I, I really feel she's made an impact on so many people's lives out there. Uh, even some of my daughter's friends, my daughter, her career is working with drug discovery, her friends uh, being a teacher. I feel like Karen has influenced so many people's lives. And I feel like like your son too is influencing others' lives too. And I don't know, I, I, I can speak for Karen and I feel like I can speak for many of the others, but Karen seems to be everyone's favorite when I show up, like, cause she's the one who's silly and laughing and <laughs> having fun and, um, calling them out on it if they're not doing what they're supposed to do or <laughs> like if food, if dinner was two minutes late, you know, or something, <laughs> that's what I'm referring to. But, um, but she's so, um, so well care- liked by so many people. I want to say yeah. she's really well liked by the people around her. Yeah. That brings okay. me peace of mind. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that that is very telling, you know, just understanding how they look at people and just reading those expressions and then just watching how they interact. You can tell so much by just observing a little bit, even, you know, since they can't tell us everything that they're feeling, they can't express all of those emotions appropriately all the time, but you, you we know, we know exactly what they're thinking by the looks on their faces. <laughs> So tell me how and when you finally got a Syngap diagnosis for Karen. Okay. So this journey to find the diagnosis started with a conversation with Karen's doctor, Dr. Grego, her um, general practitioner. And I was noticing that Karen was tripping and falling. And she then started to use a uh, walker. She was using a walker and her motor was declining and working in with special needs for 35 years. I was thinking, gosh, is there a muscular problem here or what's going on? And we also have family members who have spinal issues. So I thought, gee, maybe it's genetic from a family member. So the doctor said, well, let's get DNA testing and find out. Well, we go to see Dr. Darius Adams, and he's like, well, you're going to find out why she has seizures, why she has autism, why she has cognitive delays. And I said, really? And he said, yes, we're going to get to the bottom of this. So he said, but your parents are deceased now. My father, it's been four years, and mom was 23 years. So we're going to have to use your siblings. Said fine, so we did that. We we gave um, samples and everything, and then in the middle of all this, well, the first testing came back, the microarray negative. There was nothing, mm-hmm. so the doctor said, "Let's continue." I said, "Great." There was going to be a big cost, but we would figure it out. 
So we continued with this and then Karen came down with COVID the first round that March when it first came out and it was so bad. She went to the hospital and they, she wasn't allowed to have a caretaker with her because those mm. are the rules in the hospital. She was by herself. I literally called the hospital four times a day. I spoke to every nurse on every shift and they're like, oh, is she your mother? No, no. Like they didn't even know that she had a disability. It was right. at first. Right. Then okay. through all of my conversations and everything, the staff got to know her and they, at one point they put her on comfort care. And they said that she's not eating anymore and she's not doing well. Prepare yourself. Well, three days later, Karen woke up and she asked for food and she said, I'm thirsty. And she read the nurse's name on the wall. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we knew that she was in a good place. So after 70 days in the hospital, she went to rehab for 70 seven, or 17. Se- I'm sorry, 17 days okay. in the hospital. Ooh. Then she went to rehab for seven weeks in a special like uh, nursing home rehab facility. She came out and the week she came out is when I got a call that she had, they found something and it was Syngap 1 and it was de novo. It was not my parents' fault. And I was like, just bittersweet. I was relieved to find out that she had this diagnosis as hard as this diagnosis is, but I was so sad that my parents never knew. Uh, the guilt that they, my mother felt, uh, wondering if she ever did something wrong to cause it. But it was a celebration. And then I get a message from someone named Jess <laughs> uh, after I went on <laughs> Facebook. And Jess is like, are, are you aware that Karen might be the oldest that we're aware of? And I'm like, no. Um, so then a lot of people wanted to know her story. And we decided to make the movie. Uh, to get some new, the news out about Karen and to spread yeah. awareness. Yeah. Um, and that was, okay. So that was uh, summer of 2020 then. Yes. So June yes. 17th, 2020 was the day I got the phone call. Oh my gosh. That's Karen, incredible. Yeah. Karen was sick in March. So she got out like right before from the rehab facility. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, Receiving her diagnosis at that stage in life, how has that changed her medical care? Well, we found Dr. Davinsky from the start through networking with the Syngap Research Fund, which has been amazing. And we saw Dr. Davinsky and he's like, you know, those, those, at that eye blinking, those are seizures. And I'm like, what? Really? I didn't know that. I Mm. I worked with children with special needs. I never knew that that was a type of seizure. It was just unbelievable. So we switched up the medication, had the EGs. Um, that was really helpful. And now knowing her symptoms and everything, like it's just it make everything makes so much sense. Yeah. And the connections made have been amazing. And I'm able to refer some of the doctors that have worked well with Karen to other people. So oh, it's it works great. that way too. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, does Karen have a sense of how special she is to this community? <laughs> well, um, they, she has a nickname, which actually started before her diagnosis. They always called her Princess Karen. And literally <laughs> for her birthday, they always 
they gave her in her other group home, they gave her a tiara. This group home, they did the same thing. So (laughs) everyone sees her as princess, but now she's the movie star because she was in a movie. So Mm -hmm. she loves that and going to the gala and hearing the music and the band and the singing and the fun. She just loves it and is so excited. Oh, that's incredible. So I now I want to turn our attention to the gala because this is where I met you for the first time. I um I remember it was shortly after Kevin got home from the first cannonball. He said, Ashley, you're not gonna believe how incredible it is to meet other parents like us. You gotta go somewhere, you gotta go to an event. And so the next one coming up was the gala in that was in 2021? Was that the first? Yes. Okay. So I bought a ticket and I got on Facebook, I think, and um, I was like, okay, I'm going. Is anyone going? Does anyone want a roommate (laughs) for for the night at the hotel? (laughs) And so uh, I quickly connected with Sydney and, oh, I mean, we just had, we had an incredible time. The, The gala was such a moving event for me because it was it was the very first time I had ever met anyone else and in person I should say it was the end of covid like you know hard restrictions um and so it was like the first time I had traveled anywhere and it was such a relief and the thing that I took away immediately was I don't have to explain myself to this group of people. I don't have to apologize for how I'm feeling or interpreting something. And and if Nathan wasn't with me, but if Nathan were here, I wouldn't have to apologize or make excuses for him. And that was such a lift that I wasn't expecting. And it was so great. I will never forget the connections that I made because of coming to your gala. So Tell me how you decided to put this on, and this is going to be the third annual Karen Lieb Gala for SRF, so tell us all about it. Okay, so after I found out about Karen's diagnosis, I had retired from education, and um, for me, it was a whole renewed sense of my mission in life, what my next step was going to be, which I didn't know when I retired what I was going to be doing. I had no idea. But now it was, um, you know, my parents never had connections. They never had anyone and they were isolated and alone. I've been alone with this for so many years. You know, I can talk to some people about it, but not people that really get it and understand. So um, in speaking with Mike Gralia, the um, co-founder of the Syngap Research Fund, we talked about getting a dinner together for families in the tri-state area. And I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, I don't mind. I've never done a fundraiser before, but maybe we could do that too. But the, the most important thing for me was spreading awareness and making connections and providing a place where families could meet. I did not, I, I don't want people to be alone with this. That is what I feel so strongly about. That year, we had 16 Syngap families attend the gala. We had 86 people, and out of the 86 people, 16 families were represented. Mm -hmm. And we also had a few Syngapians there. Um, Last year, we had 
close to 150 people attend. So we went from 86 the first year to 150 <laughs> people. And so now we already have, we're a month away. We already have 89 people who have purchased tickets. Oh my god! I know. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to have to cap it out because the room can only hold so much. <laughs> but the most magnetic part of the night for me is when I stood up there, I can, I didn't really feel comfortable talking in front of people, which we talked about that year a mm-hmm. little bit. And But when I stood up there and saw the smiles and people talking to each other and finally feeling like, wow, I'm at home. I'm with other people who just get it. It was magnetic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was definitely one of the most memorable, memorable parts of, of that whole trip and experience for me. I was really sad that I didn't get to go last year and I'm, I'm, unable to go this year also, but I am so excited for those families who are going this year. And I think I say this, I don't feel like I say it enough. I probably say it all the time, but if you haven't, and you have a way to get to an event, get to another family just for lunch or something, do it. It is so worth it. It is cathartic and it is, um, valuable and so, just it, it it is such a release. I really feel the connections help to heal and help mm. also to give hope because you can share information, find out, uh, you know, all the things that are going out in the community. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the community. Yes, <laughs> a lot of there absolutely is. There absolutely is. I know as as isolating and as dark as this disease can be. There are many bright spots, many bright spots and find them, seek them out. (laughs) Absolutely. I I couldn't feel more stronger about that. Yeah. Uh, And the science and the research and what the Syngap Research Fund is doing is mind blowing. Um, I, I really feel like SRF is moving mountains with Syngap One and Yeah. It's, it's so exciting to be a part of it. And at the gala, we get to hear all about it too, which is wonderful. Where, where we were even three years ago to where we're going next. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible how quickly things can change in, in this space, in the medical space and pharmaceutical space. Uh, it's not something that I really paid attention to before. I, I didn't need to. And now that I... I'm hyper aware of what's going on. It just seems like it's coming at us so fast all the time. And I'm so very thankful for that. And I know that it is because of efforts from, you know, mainly this community. You know, we have a lot of weight behind SRF and the initiatives that we keep striving toward faster. Um, so it's, it's incredible. It's, it's heartwarming. It's encouraging, it it also makes me feel sad a little bit, Nancy, to know that, like, I mean, Karen, she's sixty seven. It's it's sad that we couldn't have gotten there so much sooner. And also for other families who have older children to know that they should get DNA testing also because they can find out what's causing it, and they can become part of a community. They don't need to be alone and. Yeah. It just makes such a difference to have, just even to be in talking to someone who understands and gets it. It's just wonderful. Yeah. 
All right. So let's end with how, what piece of advice can you give to other Syngap families to live a happier life with Syngap? Well, I think that to look for the good, um, to try to stay positive, to try to hold on hope and to make those connections, I think is so important to have something on your calendar to look forward to also something for you to take care of you because it's really hard. You have very little time for yourself and time to do the things that will give you the energy you need to sustain and to, to be able to do what you need to do. But taking care of yourself, I think is really important so right you are so right well with about a month left before the gala i am going to let you go so you can either self-care or keep preparing for the gala which i know is probably what you will do instead so nancy thank you so so much for sharing karen's story with us oh and thank you for having me a part of your podcast i'm honored to be here and very excited for the gala coming up too thank you Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and we will chat with you again soon. Hi again, everyone. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. I got so wrapped up in my conversation with Nancy that I completely forgot to share with you when the third annual Syngap Research Fund Gala actually is. It is October 21st in Bridgewater, New Jersey. We will have a link to the event in the show notes, as well as links for you to learn a whole lot more about Karen. Well, thanks for putting up with me and I will talk to you later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and like us wherever you're listening. For more information about today's guest and Syngap One, please check out our show notes. Your suggestions are always welcome. Please email us at ed at one.org.